slide for that uh, that will be coming after our scripture reading. But our scripture reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 36 through 49. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water from my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains and abides forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Father, what a beautiful story of your amazing grace to sinners. Thank you for coming 
to find us, to heal us, and to bring us into your everlasting joy. All of us who trust in Jesus. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the beauties of the gospel, one of the most beautiful things about the gospel, is the way that it applies to and attracts a very diverse, wide range of people. And today's story of this sinful woman at the dinner party continues that pattern. Jesus is once again having unlikely interactions with all kinds of people. Now, while Jesus, as we've been noticing for a while, he's in the Galilee in his home region, and for a while we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus' teaching and seeing examples of that, of healing, of demon demon. Uh, casting out demons, all of this was igniting, setting on fire the region of Galilee and beyond, all the way into down into Judea and the hill country and all the way up into parts that weren't even part of Israel at that time. While Jesus... was ministering, there were another group of religious leaders that were becoming increasingly frustrated. Jesus was everything. People were coming from all great distances to see and hear and behold what Jesus of Nazareth was doing. But there was another religious group foremost headed by the Pharisees. There were others, the scribes and the teachers of the law, but the Pharisees, they were the top of the food chain in terms of spirituality in their day. That's certainly how they saw it. And a lot of other people apparently did too. Except all of a sudden now, they're not getting much attention. All the focus is going on to Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the Pharisees felt increasingly relegated to a lesser standard and status. Why? Because Jesus was sucking all of the spiritual oxygen out of the room. Out of the spiritual space, people were coming, flowing to Jesus. And they were getting left behind. And that was not something they wanted or we're going to put up with. 
Now, so far in chapter 7, we're going to finish up chapter 7 today, Jesus shows himself as the friend of sinners. Remember, he dealt with and helped a centurion, a pagan Roman centurion. He helped him recover his servant, healed his servant. And then he went on from there, and to a poor woman, he brought back her child to life. And today, we're going to see that Jesus does something amazing again. Today, he is going to forgive the sins of a sinful woman. Now, some people think this story that we just read in our scripture reading is the same story told by Matthew, Mark, and John. I don't think that it is. It's possible, I, would, I, I presume, that it could be, but I don't think so. And a number of the folks that I pay attention to and learning and trying to understand and, and decipher and looking at commentaries and so forth, uh, I, I believe that this is a one-off. It may have had a lot of similarities, but there were things that were definitely different about those others. I think this is unique to Luke. Now, also... The story is, of course, one of great contrast. Great contrast. And the scene is likely set, once again, in Capernaum. Jesus having come back from Nain, back to his home uh, town or his, his chosen place of ministry, back to Capernaum. Now, I say it's a thing of great contrast because of this. Our outline for the uninvited guests has these three elements. The sinner, the saint with air quotes, and the Savior. That's the contrast. A sinner, a quote, saint, and the Savior. So let's dig into that this morning. Now, the center portion is found in verses 36 through 38. Luke's story starts, surprisingly, with a Pharisee. Remember, before Levi, Matthew, has already in chapter 5, he's already thrown a party for Jesus. But that's a very different story. This is a Pharisee. The Pharisees then were on the outside looking in. Now this is a Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home. Now what was he up to? What was he seeking to accomplish? We don't know. He may have actually had or wondered, maybe could this have been? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be? But for whatever reason, we're just told that he was invited and Jesus accepted. It's a good thing that Jesus 
is the kind of Savior that accepts such offers. Now, as I said, Simon was invited, and Jesus took up the invitation. Now, you notice that it said in the text, at table. Now, you and I know what a table is. We don't actually have one in here, but uh, we've got them in the fellowship hall. Uh, you sit down at a table. Most of the time, we, in our culture today, we sit down at a table to have a meal with, with someone or with one another. But dining in that culture was very different than what we do. It was referred to as reclining at table. Reclining at table. So it wasn't a table that you would sit in like we do with the table being up here. It was more, and if I didn't want to get my, uh, my duds all, I'd show you basically. But you would, they would be leaning over on, a, on couches, flat couches, with a, a table, a, a wooden table or a stone table or something that would have held the food and drink. And they would lean on their left elbow and extend their legs outward until they got to the knee and then it would bend their knees back that direction. Why would they do that? Because of all the dirtiness and so forth. And that's why the woman came from behind. And so, but they would, and they would eat with their right hand only, never with the left for a number of reasons. Uh, but they would, that's how they would eat. And they would reach down and either pick up bread or pick up a, a wine or whatever in the feast. And yet the, their feet would always be, because that was the dirtiest part, obviously. And they didn't want to get their feet anywhere near the guests or the food. And so they would always point their feet back, backward, as they lay on their side with their elbow. Now, when the guests were enjoying this leisurely meal, because it would have taken a lot of time, this would have been, had a lot of, not just go in and you know, like going through Burger King, this is not grabbing something and go, this is, this is formal dining, if you, or, or semi-formal dining, if you will. And when the guests were enjoying their leisurely meal, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this woman. The fact that she was a woman in general was somewhat arresting and would have caught a lot of people's attention. But when they noticed which woman it was that had come in to this gathering, into this house from outside, they were absolutely shocked, flabbergasted, because this was a woman with a bad reputation. She's referred to as a sinner from the city, from the district, most likely. And she, without any hesitation, went behind Jesus at his feet 
as she approached and stood with her tears pouring down on Jesus' feet. And then she wiped them away with her hair and kissed his feet and poured this incredibly expensive perfume. Nard, extremely precious and fragrant. Now, what in the world is going on? Everybody there except Jesus had to be shocked out of their mind. This gesture was shocking to many, but it was not impulsive to her. It was planned. She absolutely knew why she was there and what she was there to do. Now, she had come prepared. And she had not only come prepared with the things to anoint Jesus' feet and to, and to wash his feet and bring that fragrance She also knew that she was in for bitter scorn and rejection. She knew that culturally she had no business being anywhere near this gathering. And yet she knew and she had to come. She was not going to be denied. Now the question is why? Why did she come? Why did she do this? Why did she disrupt what was going on? Well, very simple. She came because Jesus was there. She came because Jesus was there. She had to do something for the one that has done had done something so amazing to her and for her you see it's quite likely that this woman had already met Jesus and very likely perhaps had already been forgiven of her sinful past by Jesus and now all of the implication of that was working through her mind and her heart. And she could not do anything but give Jesus everything that she had out of gratitude. You see, this woman had been living with intense guilt. And she knew she was a sinner. Most of the people of Jesus' day that the Pharisees rejected and frowned upon for their sinfulness, they knew it. They knew they were sinners. You remember the one that cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So was this woman's mindset. You see, this woman had been living in intense guilt, but she knew that she was a sinner. But now, now because of Jesus, her guilt had been forgiven. 
and the crushing burden that had been on her shoulders had been taken away. And her grateful love could not be restrained. It didn't matter what the cost. Who would think what? Who would say what? She had to be and serve the one that had set her free and forgiven her. And a team of wild horses wouldn't have been able to stop her. That's the center. But what about the saint? He's found in verses 39 through 43 primarily. Now, talk about contrast. What you just heard. What gratitude. What incredible love for the Savior. But what about the saint? In quotes. No group of men was more consistently hostile to Jesus of Nazareth than the Pharisees. Now, it's not necessary, that's not saying that all, every single Pharisee in the whole country. No, there were there were some perhaps that did, and some that we even know about, probably had ties. But generally speaking, it was this group of the Pharisees above all that gave Jesus the most trouble. Matter of fact, no people were more proud, exclusive, and self-righteous than the Pharisees. They took the cake. They put the others in their dust. They saw themselves as holy, virtuous. You're talking about virtue signaling. <laughs> they lived to virtue signal. Holy, virtuous, spiritual protectors that were viewed as saints by others until Jesus came along. And viewed that way by themselves. They were rather, rather proud. Rather self-justified. Now the Pharisee, seeing what this woman had done, was absolutely flabbergasted. And he was offended by what this woman was doing for Jesus, his guest. Listen to verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to, the, said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Spoken like a true Pharisee. 
You see, perhaps Simon maybe once wondered if Jesus could have been the long-promised one, or at least a great prophet, that there would be value in learning from him. But now he knows that can't be the case because prophets don't associate with trash like this woman. They don't associate with sinners. They stay aloof, away from them as far as they can be, lest they be defiled. So, Jesus, of course, knew Simon's thoughts, and he put a little query to his host. Listen to verses 41 through 42. A certain moneylender, he's talking to Simon, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, a, a whole bunch of money, and the other 50, a very, very small amount of money. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, both of them, the great sum and the little sum. Then Jesus said, now, which of them will love him more? Which of him will love him more? Now, Simon's not stupid. He can, he can do math. Simon gave reluctantly, begrudgingly probably, he gave the answer with a, I suppose. Notice he didn't say, he said, well, I guess. There's no joy in it, though. He answered, I suppose the one who forgave more? Jesus said, bingo. You got it. But of course, he knew what was in Simon's heart. You see, Simon and this woman, here's where the contrast merges and melds. They seem so completely and utterly different. And yet the truth is, they're both in the same boat. The boat of being under the judgment of God because of their sin. You see, Simon and the woman were both bankrupt. But she knew it and he didn't. She knew it, but he didn't. He wasn't a sinner. You see, Simon, for all his self-righteousness, was just as hopelessly in sin's debt as this despised woman was. You 
You see, both were sinners, but only one could admit to it. You know, one of the things that tells you the most about where you are spiritually and where I am, it's not what we've accomplished or what we've done. It's what we acknowledge that we haven't done. It's when we recognize I am a great sinner. And that is the way down becoming the way up. But if you can't go down, you can't go up. If you try to go up and up and up on your own, you will ultimately fall down and break your crown and everything else that you ever thought. You see, there was a story told about during the time of the Great Awakening. You know what the Great Awakening, it was a spiritual revival in the 1700s and the 1740s. Uh, tremendous number of people being converted and coming to Christ. And one of the great instruments that was used all over New England uh, was George Whitfield, the great uh, prince of preachers, George Whitfield. And during that great awakening, a very high lady, the Countess of Hunting, Huntingdon, uh, invited another duchess to come and hear with her the great George Whitfield preach. The man was able, imagine a set of pipes where you could go into the open air and have 8,000 people hear every single word and inflection that you said. And so the, the countess wanted her friend and fellow duchess to come to hear Whitfield. But the duchess was offended at the very invitation from her friend. She did not want anyone telling her that she, highbrow lady that she is, ever needed to repent of anything. That's for the riffraff. That's for the scum, for the street. That's not for high-born and high-brow people like me. She wrote back to the countess. She said this, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on this earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much as at variance with high rank and good breeding. She said, how, how could you even go near that trash? And I'm certainly not going to go hear some preacher tell me that I need to repent. 
years later, about 100 years later, C.H. Spurgeon, another one that was called the Prince of Preachers, he once said this, if any man thinks ill of you, Do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Don't get angry, because you really are a whole lot worse. You're upset that he's saying something negative about you. Spurgeon says, you've got to know how to go down. The last part, the Savior, verses 44 through 50. Just kind of bringing this together. You see, our Savior made it clear to Simon that he had disregarded the common courtesies of a host. Jesus said, you didn't. I came in here, you did nothing for me. And then he said, but look at what she did. The extravagance, the cost, the love for Jesus. This woman had fulfilled them all out of love for the Savior. And because of that, Jesus pronounced her, the woman, forgiven not on the basis of what she had done, but on the basis of her faith in him. Love didn't save her. Love was the fruit of what a saved person gives and wants to give out of gratitude. You see, Simon is left wallowing in his self-righteousness. But others there are wondering, having witnessed this. Who is this guy? Who is this man who can even forgive sins? And they knew that only God could forgive sins. You're talking about their categories getting shaken up. But you see, once again, this contrast. Once again, we see the astonishing reversal of fortunes that Luke shows us over and over and over again. The good... They're not good. There are none. The bad that are admitting that they're bad, they're the ones getting in. They're the ones that are going to make it because they found the one who has done it for us. And now they can respond in grateful love like this precious woman you see, once again, we see that astonishing reversal of fortunes. Jesus 
turns the tables on the Pharisees once again. It won't be the first time, and it won't be the last. But he again shows what the true gospel is like. I want to read you one other quote from Philip Graham Riken in his commentary on Luke. Listen to this. The more we feel, you and I, the more we feel we do not need to be forgiven, like the Duchess, the more self-righteous we become. And the more self-righteous we become, the less love we give. We only do the minimum. We do not pour out our lives like fragrant perfume. If we love Jesus so little, it can only be because we have little idea of how much we have been forgiven. The way to get a better idea about this is not to go out and become bigger sinners. All we need to do is see how big our sins already are. This means being honest about the sinfulness of our worry, of our greed, our gossip, and our rage. And it means coming back to God again and again in repentance in order to find grace upon grace in Jesus and in Jesus only. You heard me quote earlier C.H. Spurgeon. Well, I want to now quote C. John Miller. Similar, about 100 years apart or a little more, but similar sentiments. This is how C. John Miller put it, Jack Miller. He said something similar to what Spurgeon did. Cheer up. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Every one of you, hearing my voice, listening and looking at me now, every one of you are a much greater sinner than you ever imagined. That's the bad news. And so am I. I'm in the boat too. But Jack Miller didn't stop there. Praise God he didn't stop there. Yes, that's the truth. But he went on to say, you're more loved than you 
ever dared hope. You are, if you are in Christ, if you trust Jesus as this woman did, you are more loved than you can ever imagine or dare hope. The sinner in our story knew that. How about you? How about me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, how can it be we, the chief of sinners, more sinful than we ever could imagine. And yet now because of Jesus, more loved that we could ever know. More loved because of what he's accomplished. Father, make it, make us full of loving gratitude to others who know that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.